I love to hear you sing. That was beautiful. Appreciate that. Well, I think we have discovered how to get everybody here on time. Just have a, a breakfast and people will show up. Praise the Lord. Well, the resurrection is about new life. And I just want to greet everybody here this morning. I'm glad that we can be in the presence of God together and celebrate this great event. And I'm filled with joy this morning. I'm filled with joy this morning at the beauty of the cross. It's a tradition that we have, and I have done it myself. My family was raised in this church, and our kids, when they were first had to be carried, and then they could walk on their own, we went through all the stages, and we got to celebrate this and enjoy the beautifying the cross. Flowers bloom and blossom under the right circumstances and at the right time. And that's why we're able to do this. And as God's creation, people bloom and blossom under the right circumstances and at the right time. And the right time for us to bloom and blossom is when we are in the presence of God, when we give our minds to Him, when we give our hearts to Him, when we yearn for what God has for us, when we yearn for His kingdom, that's when we bloom. That's when we come the most alive. I'm filled with joy this morning because I got to hear your voices. I got to hear a people that are excited to worship the Lord. And that's evidence of the resurrection that the Holy Spirit is, is here among us doing His work, opening our eyes to the joys of the kingdom of God. I'm filled with joy that you exude the excitement of your faith in Christ Jesus. But I am most filled with joy this morning because we are here to celebrate the resurrection. This is something that is absolutely unique in the world when it comes to religion and faith. We have a God that was dead but rose again. A God that walked out of the tomb. And because He walked out of the tomb, as we will hear a little later this morning, we will as well. I love that verse that Noah shared about the one seed becomes many seeds. See, we follow in those footsteps of the glorious Lord. So I love the beauty. I love the joy. But I also love the wonder. Aren't our hearts and minds filled with wonder? And how could something so spectacular take place? As we think about the setting of the tomb when they lay that, that lifeless body in that hole. And by the power of God in some mysterious, wondrous way, that lifeless body came back, was resurrected. It's mysterious, but it's so, so wonderful. I also take joy in the fact that we get to celebrate the resurrection Every year. I get to celebrate it with my church family until either we go to see the Lord or until He comes back and just takes us home. And either one is fine with me. Whatever happens first, I'm good with it either way. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. I'm very excited to talk to you about the resurrection today because it's a 
subject that is so, so important to our Christian faith. I mean, there's a lot of truths that we marvel at, we wonder, we wonder at, and they impact our lives, and they help us, they guide us where we need to be in the sight of God, but the resurrection is on another level. It is absolutely crucial and important to our faith. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says that the fact of the resurrection is so important to who we are as a people that if Christ did not walk out of that tomb, if He did not rise from the dead, we're a bunch of liars because we're telling people He did. And not only are we a, a bunch of liars, but we, our worship and everything we do here, all of our joyful songs are in vain because there's nobody to sing to. And he says that our lives are pitiful. We're a pitiful people going through these motions if Christ did not rise from the dead. And then he ends by saying, not only that, but we're still dead in our sins. So what is there to celebrate? 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified that God had raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Our hope is not just to be in this life. This is a wonderful life. God's given us a good life. But that's not where our final hope is anchored. Our our final hope is anchored in the heavens, not on the earth. And so the resurrection is not just one tenet of our faith. It's a foundation. The foundation for all that we are and all that we say that we believe in. Why is that? Because a resurrection is God's stamp of approval that what Christ said about Himself, that I came to die the one for many, that my blood, as He, as he explained in the upper room, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled out for you. He takes on the sins of the world. How do we know that the sacrifice and the atoning and the covering actually took place and that God was pleased with it? That God recognized it and acknowledged it. We know because the tomb was rolled away. The stone was rolled away. I don't know what happened to the tomb. I think the tomb stayed still, but the stone was rolled away. So it's God's approval, overwhelming approval that yes, this is my son and the sacrifice that he has offered, I accept it. I am well pleased. If we did not have that and we thought that Jesus died for our sins and the tomb was not open, what would we do with ourselves? Maybe we would be wringing our hands. Well, did it work? Did the Father accept the sacrifice that Jesus said He was offering to Him? What kind of faith would we have? That's how important the resurrection is. And by the way, the stone was rolled away, I'm just going to surmise for our benefit. Jesus in His, resurrect, in his resurrected body didn't need anybody to roll it for Him, right? Because He can just go where He wants in His resurrected body. God sent an angel to make a spectacle of it to roll the stone away. I'm so grateful that 
the resurrection is built on historical evidence. It's built on facts. The Gospels are not, not uh, storybooks. The Gospels are historical accounts of what happened in this day and time. And that God does not require His people to just trust in blind faith that this happened. It's recorded. It's historical. It's factual. We can follow it. We can trust it. We can believe in it. There were witnesses, the Gospels tell us, no less than 500, and that doesn't include women and children. That's a lot throughout the ages. What a powerful thing in that day to be able to go to someone. The Apostle Paul encouraged people, if you're wondering about this, it sounds miraculous because it is, but if you're wondering about this, go ask the people who saw him. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul establishes the fact of the resurrection for the purpose of establishing the fact of our resurrection. Because our resurrection is hinged on Christ's resurrection. And if he didn't walk out of that tomb, that's why we're to be pitied. Because we're, we're stuck in a state of death. We're stuck being stung by the sting of Death, but Jesus was the first fruits of many. His victory is our victory. It's, it's not a stretch to say that the Christian life lived in eternity is a life that is just living out the victory that Christ won for us. That's what heaven will be. It's living out the victory of Christ because God was so, so pleased with that sacrifice. And Christ did it all. So with that said, I want to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's an extremely long chapter. We're not going to cover, but a little bit of it this morning. And it's all about the resurrection. I'm just going to guess that many of you have been reading on that this week. I'm going to read verses 35 to 49 just to capture kind of catch up to where Paul is, what he's talking about regard, regarding the resurrection. But I'm going to focus in on just verses 42 through 49 because that's, as I read this chapter, that's the little passage that piqued my interest and gripped me. And I, I read it and I said, I want to know what that means for me. What are you teaching me in this? So let's catch up with his thinking as we're, our minds are in the resurrection. Verse 35 the Corinthians are, are struggling with this idea. They're wondering about it. Is it possible? What will happen to us? They're questioning. They're doubting. Some of them will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. Perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it as a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another there's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for stars differ from star in 
glory. So he's setting the stage. He's talking about the, the forms that God has made and the purpose. They all have their purpose their, uh, and meaning. They were purposely made different to glorify God in different ways. And the earthly is different than the heavenly. So here we go in our text this morning. So it is, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What is Paul teaching us here about the resurrection? He's contrasting things for us to help us grasp, but he's contrasting what's the natural the things of the earth, uh, up against the things that are of heaven. There's a difference. Uh, We get natural bodies from the dust. God created us from the dust. And so we are made from the dust. We get our spiritual bodies, our resurrection bodies, not from the earth of this dust, but from the heavenly man, from whatever kind of heavenly material God resurrects us with. And so we find that In the resurrection, there's a continuity and also a discontinuity. That is, we're we're sown natural, we're raised spiritual, but we're still the same person that God created us to be. We'll be able to identify ourselves. Other people will recognize us and know us. But there's a discontinuity in that in our risen bodies, they're not exactly the same. They've been upgraded, to say the least. So, So there's a continuity and a discontinuity in that sense. We don't change so much that we'll be like, oh, I don't even know who I am. But we will change and have new features that will be new to us. And so there's that sense in which it's different. There's a big difference as well in our pre-fall bodies and our post-fall bodies. And that's what's interesting about this text. That Paul's not only contrasting, well, we we can identify with our post-fall bodies. We can identify with that kind of weakness. But he's taking us back before the fall and, and, and having us think about the matter that God created us with as contrasted with the heavenly being that we will become. So I want to look, if my points are, Uh, a man of dust or buried a man of dust and raised a man of heaven. I'm not going to keep them nice and neat. I'll probably, because the text doesn't. So I'm going to be a little bit back and forth here. But first, let's consider buried a man of dust. When we talk about the resurrection, we have little problem 
understanding what Paul's saying when he talks about our bodies being perishable. When he talks about our bodies being weak. About being dishonorable or, or, uh, or under humili- a sense of humiliation because of our state. We understand that. We don't live long before we experience our mortality. We don't live long before we're hurt, we're broken, we're bleeding. Our hearts, our emotions, our minds, our intellect, something is, is, is pushed, teased. Something's going to hurt. Something's going to breathe. We don't work right. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with us. Something's wrong with this world. And we look around at a world and we see hospitals. Why? Because we fall apart. Because we break. We understand our mortality. But we not only see hospitals. But we see a world that is necessarily dotted with graveyards. How far can you go in this world without seeing a graveyard? And every graveyard is a reminder of our mortality. It's a reminder that we're perishable. We have a shelf life. And no matter how well, and we should be good stewards and take care of ourselves because we can live better quality of life, but no matter how well we take care of ourselves, we are going to die because this body is under a curse and God will see to it. Nobody escapes it. We understand that, right? The weakness. This whole idea of being broken. Strength. Even the strongest man in the world wants to be stronger. We might be impressed with ourselves when we reach our peak. But wouldn't it be nice to reach another peak and another peak after that? We're so limited. So I don't think we have much under uh, struggle. We don't struggle much understanding this. And we know as Christians that the limitations that we experience are a result of the fall of man. Because of Adam's disobedience, God has cursed man, he's cursed creation. And there's this heaviness. We have to live under this sickness and this brokenness because we've offended a holy God. And so really, it's our own fault. It's, we destroy ourselves with our disobedience. We destroy ourselves with our idolatry. We destroy ourselves with one unwise decision or immoral decision after another. It just makes a mess and a mess and it tangles all up. The whole creation is cursed to the point, it's not just a little bit, but it's so bad that Scripture tells us all of creation groans and moans. Why do you groan and moan when you do it? Something hurts, something isn't right, and you want to be fixed. In Romans chapter 8, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Everything about this world groans to be set right, to be fixed, to be mended. Our bodies are filled with sin under the curse. In Genesis 3.19, we are cursed with the curse of death. 
Dust you are, and to dust you will return. I made you from this. I breathed life in you. But because of your sin, you will be put back into the ground. You have a shelf life. But even though that we're headed to heaven as believers, the Apostle Paul wants us to know that the bodies that we have cannot go to heaven. The bodies that we have will not make it. They're not cut out for it. They weren't created to endure the glory or the level of glory that will be in heaven. The levels of worship that will take place, these bodies will not do. So God in His grace and His kindness and according to His plan, He's going to fit us with new bodies. And this is where the apostles teaching I think takes a turn that kind of takes me deeper than I expected to go but yet I come back up with a greater appreciation and wonder and awe of what it really means to have a resurrected body. I say this because Paul is not just contrasting our, our bodies post fall, our sinful state of humanity. He takes us back to before the fall. He takes us back to the original creation of Adam and Eve. And he says even in that natural sense, that body, before it was endued with sin, is not fit for heaven. It's natural, it's not spiritual. And only the spiritual will make it in. So he says in verse 45, thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. He's quoting Genesis 2.7. Here's how we find it, just in the second chapter of the Bible. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is before the fall. This is, this is pristine. This is the age of innocence. Everything is beautiful, wonderful. There's nothing broken. It is all good. I think this is important because it helps us to understand as we wrestle with this idea of what will we be like? What is heaven like? What will the the new world look like? It's not just restoration. It's not, Paul is not teaching that the resurrected body will be right back like it originally was created, like Adam and Eve before the fall. It's not just about restoration to the original creation. It's about transformation that leads to a consummation. In other words, the idea is that even the original plan, though it was good and perfect, was not the final plan that God had in mind. It wasn't the final level of glory that God had in mind for creation or for mankind. If we were restored to where we once were back in the garden, as pristine and perfect as it was, that's good enough for me. That's great enough for me to be put back in a place where there is no sin to worry about. And we're in the garden with God. It's good enough for me, but it's not good or great enough or grand enough for God. He had something even more spectacular in mind in the beginning of time. So think with me about heaven. In your imagination and your understanding of heaven, 
Will there be sin in heaven? Will there, will, will there be deception? Will we face daily temptation? In heaven, will we go to a place where there's a, at least a potential of death? Is it a place where the possibility of judgment will fall upon it like it fell upon Eden? That's certainly not my understanding of heaven. And yet if we think about Eden, we find these things before Adam ate and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. It was perfect, but it had not reached its full potential. See, in heaven, and we picture of it, we picture it, and so we should because it's so much better than what we have here. But in heaven, there was a vulnerability. There was a, there was a, a, there was a, a, a truth about heaven or a part of heaven that wasn't, sorry, a part of Eden, the garden that wasn't safe. So before the fall, in this beautiful place, Satan existed. Now man was innocent. The trees were beautiful. They had just been created. But in this garden, Satan, the father of lies, existed. Which means in this garden is the potential for temptation. It's the potential for evil. It's the potential for death. Flawless, marvelous, pure, very good, but not yet fully glorious because of those very reasons. Innocent Adam wasn't safe. Also, in the garden, God placed the man and the woman with the potential, with the free will, with the potential to choose good or evil. And so the whole time in this beautiful place in this garden, there's this looming. As soon as the serpent enters the story, it's like everything starts going down. Everything started going downhill at the fall and it hadn't stopped. But, but, so we see this capacity here to choose good or evil. So Eden is good, but it's not completely safe. And this means that everything that God created was not completely safe. All of the wonderful institutions, all of what he had in mind and he set into motion was not completely safe. It was vulnerable. Even the, 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 the one flesh covenant of marriage wasn't safe in Eden. And sure enough, what do we find when God, Adam discovers there's nobody suitable for me and he's distraught and it's not good for man to be alone. So God creates Eve from Adam brings her before him and he couldn't be more excited. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He's dancing a jig. He's complete. And not long after that, he's throwing her under the bus. God, the woman you gave me made me do it. Threw God and his wife under the bus. That relationship, broken. Eden was good, but it had not reached its full potential. In the garden, we see 
Adam and Eve, we picture Adam and Eve enjoying the presence of God in perfection. And we hear about how God was coming to them in the eve, the afternoon, the coolness of the day. But you didn't just have the presence of God, you had the potential judgment of God. Genesis 3, 8 through 10, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So here we have in the garden the potential of judgment, and it fell. Because mankind that had the potential to choose evil chose evil. It was judgment day and eviction day all in the same day. That was a busy day for the garden. So as we think about heaven and the resurrection, resurrected bodies, is this what God is going to take us back to? Is this the life that we will go back to the original garden of Eden where we will be vulnerable, where perhaps every day will we have to uh, resist temptation? Will, will the judgment loom under, over us this whole time? This place that really isn't safe is not fixed. Is that what God is going to restore us to? Or did God have something better in mind the whole time? God had something better in mind the whole time. Adam and Eve, with the gardens and the trees in the garden, were placed on probation with the will and the way that God created them. And so we know there were the two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. They were forbidden to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is that? It's a test. It's a probation. We often think of probation, if you've been in trouble before, you think of probation as, yeah, man, I'm on probation. I, had to, I got in trouble and I had to do time, but they let me out now. And I have, to, I have to prove myself that I'm trustworthy again before I can have the freedoms that I originally enjoyed. That's one kind of probation. But there's another kind of probation, and that is like the kind when you get, perhaps when you're on a new job and they say, Okay, we hire you, we want you to do this work, but it's a probationary period because we're not sure you can do it. We're not sure how well you're going to do, so you're on probation. But if you can do this well, then we're going to give you more responsibility. Then we're going to give you more responsibility, and there's no end to how far you can go. But you have to prove yourself. It's a test. And so we have that same test in the garden. You have to prove your obedience. God laid down the commandment. He gave the law. He gave the consequences. You shall surely die if you eat this. It was a test. And they failed it. So let's look at the vulnerability and the, the, the lack of safety in the garden and compare it to what the Scripture tells us about heaven. So first, regarding the presence of evil, temptation, vulnerability, and even death. Here's how John describes the new heavens and the new earth. So it's not a restoration, it's a consummation, it's a transformation. Revelation 21 through 27, he says, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
There's not the potential of evil. It's not allowed in heaven. We will not be tested every day regarding where our hearts are and where we stand. It's vanquished. It's better than Eden. Regarding the vulnerability in the covenant relationships where Adam and Eve broke covenant and their relationship, they doubted each other and they, they, did, they weren't a team anymore. And threw each other under the bus. Marriage, we find in Ephesians 5, is a metaphor for the covenant relationship between Christ and His church that is consummated in heaven. There's no broken covenants up there. It's a God that speaks and keeps His promise. And when He says, I love you, I'm going to bring you to Myself and keep you and hold you forever and, and, and adore you forever, that's what He does, period. It's, it will never change. There's no betrayal. There's no, it's just such an atmosphere of complete safety here. Regarding a place of potential judgment and eviction, Revelation 21.3 says, He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. No final judgment. The final, the judgment's already taken place before this. There's no more sentences, no more court days, no more fear of any kind. Regarding the full potential of the glory of man, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Morally and physically, we will be transformed in degrees of glory until we reach the ultimate of God's plan. So these bodies that we have, and even the bodies that Adam and Eve had, will not do for heaven. It will be too wonderful. It will be too glorious. So the resurrection is not about this restoration. It's about consummation. The word consummation means the final achievement, the final plan. A lot of theologians speculate, and it's just speculation, but it's, it's by deduction, it's a priori, that what if Adam passed the test? Then what would have happened? Well, then God would have transformed Adam and Eve into more glorious creatures, transformed the Eden, uh, the Garden of Eden, no more evil, no more temptation. They would have been free to eat the tree of life. Now, the reason is that they think if he passed the test, then God would have fulfilled his great plan. But now the plan is fulfilled only through Christ, who was obedient as the second Adam. He was the one that didn't eat the forbidden fruit. He lived the life of obedience that Adam should have lived because he did it. Now the heavens are open. Now the bodies and heaven and earth are transformed. So these pre-fall bodies can't handle the glory that God had originally intended. In 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Now, we don't have it all figured out. 
But we know that the resurrected body of Jesus was physical. It wasn't just spiritual. And bodies are important to God. The Apostle Paul talks about when we die and go to heaven with just our spirits, we have to wait for our embodiment to be united again. And it's unnatural for us just to be without our bodies. It was always God's intention for us to have that form. It's just going to be of a heavenly matter, not an earthly matter. These bodies that we are equipped with, that Adam were equipped with, cannot handle the level of glory that God has in store for us. He wants to glorify Himself for us. So the senses that we have here will not do. We can't sing loud enough on the, in this world and on this earth. We're just not, we're not at that level. We can't see God like we need that we, like we will be able to see God. We won't be able to hear the glorious things, to hear the footsteps as God comes in this perfectly safe place. And because God came down, He will lift us up and elevate us and glorify Himself through us. As I close, I'm reminded, as I think about our bodies, I think about the new heavens and the new earth, I'm reminded by... Uh, a quote from C.S. Lewis as he describes the characters in the Chronicles of Narnia. They reach their final destination and they say, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Come further up. Come further in. In another page, the further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. I think that's more reality than fantasy than we will realize here. Let me close by contrasting, like the apostle does in this passage, contrasting a few of these words. The word for perishable, according to the New International uh, Greek Testament commentary, the word for perishable means uh, decreasing capacities. This is our life. This is our story. Decreasing capacities and increasing weaknesses, issuing in exhaustion and stagnation. For example, in a state of decay, conveys not only destruction or termination, but also mutilation. And he talks about different words. It may denote to be marred and spoiled, corrupt, even in a moral sense. Uh, The word for weak denotes an incapacity to achieve such competency and the spiral of consequent frustration, degeneration, through maximal, unsuccessful effort and distraction. That's what the word weak means. Have you ever been frustrated? You can't do what you want to do? Things get worse? Now now let's look at what the word imperishable means. It is the exact opposite of the definition of perishable. The exact opposite of decay. It's a solidity of progressive, purposive, flourishing, and fullness of life. Hold on, that's deep. Let me read the other one about strength. The word for power is the capacity to effect or to activate what the agent in question determines to do. In other words, you determine to do something, you'll be able to do it. 
Power denotes not a static source of competency, but an energizing crescendo of equipment and capacities for splendor and perhaps unimagined tasks and service yet to come. In other words, this is talk about an improvement. Our bodies will be so enhanced and equipped to experience the new heaven and earth, to have this closer access to God, that it will, it will be a flourishing that will never end. It will be an improving, an enhancement. Our experiences will, will have one good day after another. And you think to yourself, there's no way tomorrow could be, any day could top how good today was, and yet it will, because there's no peaks it's, it's a strength and it's an energy and it's a life, a, a glory that, that God creates us with and He puts in us and we experience all of this and there's no, there's no ceiling to it. And so what we have here just does not do. We can't hear as well, we can't see as well, taste or touch. We may have more senses. We may have just enhanced five sentences, we may have more senses in order to take it all in because God's plan is to fellowship with us, to be with us. And so he has to recreate us into those creatures that can fill that role for him. And when he enhances us with these resurrected bodies, then we will truly be at home. Then we will truly understand the glory that God possesses as He glorifies Himself in us. It's pleasures innumerable. And God, through Christ, made a way. And so that's important because it enables us, it causes us to long for heaven. It causes us to long to continue to worship God until we worship Him in fullness. So God's plan, we go from dust to glory. Buried a man of the earth, raised a heavenly man. May God bless the preaching of His Word.